It's time for First Voices Radio with Tilkison Ghost Horse. Please stay tuned. What makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Welcome to First Voices Radio. I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse. Martin Shaw is a writer, mythologist, and oral storyteller. I interviewed Martin without any agenda planned or a particular topic to discuss. Thus, we continued with allowing whatever it was to come into conversation. You can find out more about Martin Shaw at drmartinshaw.com. I love, I love your interviews. You know, I'm a fan of what you're doing. Thank you for that, Martin. Just an honor that you listened to the First Voices Radio. I met you so long ago, I think, in Dartington. Yeah, Dartington Hall, where it was. And was it with Pat? Pat McCabe, yes. Yes. And you guys talked. Yeah. I remember that. I remember it was an unusual experience. And were you playing a flute? I was the flute player. Yeah, that was my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Yeah, Yeah, if you would, yeah. A good place to begin for me would be, I'm known in in the tradition that I come from, I'm something called a shanaki. Now, shanaki, that's an Irish word to describe, really, a cultural historian of a place. And you collect the history of a place through stories. So though I'm raised in Britain, a large part of my DNA and my blood uh, is an area of Ireland called Connaught. And I've only just a couple of days come back from being on tour all over Ireland, performing this ancient function. However, I would not be a Shanachie and I wouldn't be a storyteller if it wasn't for a man called Wallace Black Elk. If it wasn't for Wallace, it never ever would have chimed in my head. And actually I met Wallace in the late 90s, so I would have been in my 20s. And actually, it wasn't uh, it wasn't in South Dakota. It wasn't in America. Wallace was coming over as an old man doing really a kind of a lecture tour, ostensibly. But you can imagine, whilst Wallace's lectures were interesting, what you wanted to see him functioning in was ceremony. And that was a whole other game. So in a very natural and organic and kind of almost non-discussed manner, 
I ended up becoming just part of a whole entourage of people that were traveling with him for a couple of weeks. Uh, I was in no means special or singled out in that way. As you know, it's just the kind of thing that happens. Everybody's traveling with grandpa now. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? We had word got out and grandpa's just sitting in the corner with his calling songs and his drum. Unbelievable. But the point was, the thing that I, I never forgot about Wallace was that he lived in a world where landscape, uh, where language mattered. It reached out and you could negotiate with a cloud formation. You could charm a tree. You could you could move an energy along by the words that came out of him. It was a connected world. And that imprint, even though it's, you know, 25 years ago now, it began the process for me of wanting to dig into stories and realizing that culturally we speak a damaged language. We speak a language of sarcasm. We are no longer praise makers. Certainly in the West, we are adrift when it comes to how to grieve. If we grieve at all, we grieve alone. And so all of that became the last quarter of a century of my life. And I, I went off and lived in a tent for four years. And that was the time, you, you'll remember this, that was the time when you could still, there was no phone in my pocket, there was no computer to write on. I just went and lived in a tent exploring remaining pockets of English wilderness, which believe it or not, just about exist. And whilst doing that and training as a rites of passage guide, these stories started to arrive that had a lot more dignity in them than the kind of psychological mapping that was going on in the, the, the therapeutic world. It was older than that. It was more alive than that. So I've been involved in this very slow apprenticeship to those kind of issues. I, I love the fact that this kind of went flowing, like we were still conversing, never finished our conversation we had before. It's just that's how story is, isn't it? And yes. I'm thinking that, okay, so what I will do right now is, according to the West, I should have introduced you first, but no, it was our spirit that introduced themselves first. But now this is the formal one for the radio. But first of all, I want to say, I'm Betty Washte, Latoyan Wachianke, Chante Washte, Napechi Zapielo, Le Chante, Itaha Wogolake, Le Unkipiki He Washtelo. So I wanted to just to greet you in my language to open those dimensions up to make sure that you know that what I said you felt rather than me interpreting or translating into a language. And I would say this, Martin, it's a great honor to have you here, Martin Shaw on First Forces Radio. Thank you for agreeing to be here. Oh, thank, thank you, my friend. Listening to you speak then, the perfume of what you're doing is giving me health. The, the, the smell, the scent of what you're doing. I've, I've been on the road for four weeks now telling stories every day. Uh, and just to be sitting with you now is, is restorative. So thank you for having me. Mm. So we're going to start with something that I think there's a certain angst that I don't think we are dealing with. And I'm feeling the story that you you carry, Shenaki, that the storytelling is of ancient, quote-unquote, traditions, but it's an ancient lineage that comes out naturally in, in all, all human beings, but all life. Trees tell a story. 
rabbits tell a story, humans tell a story. It's unfortunate to me that human beings tell a anthropocentric story where rabbits are telling not just a rabbit story, but their relationship with other life forms. So that angst is maybe to understand that maybe we start getting away from the anthropocentric or the anthropocentricity of story and understand the angst that preventing us from reaching out to other relations. It's a very difficult thing that in the last hundred years in a Western climate, there's been a rediscovery of myth, uh, a re-enthusiasm uh, for folk and fairy tales. But if you're not careful, uh, the center of the narrative is always from a human point of view. You never get a sense, you don't hear the earth thinking through the story. Uh, and in the stories that I love and are captivated by, that's what you get. You get an earth that is thinking in myth. An old storyteller would be someone that had gone into a landscape and gone walkabout and been quiet and listened. And at some point, you hear the gossip of the hedgerows. You hear how a lake murmurs. You hear how a crow squawks. And somehow that truly infiltrates the way you speak, communicate, hear, the story has many PowerPoints in it, not just the great beating heart of a human. Um, and personally, I, I don't know how you feel about it. If there are any stories in the world we need at this point, it's those. No stories that, that you talk about a feeling are coming from the core or a center that's been covered up by the angsts, and I, I say plural, and made more mental rather than the, the truer vein of, of what it means to feel the heartbeat, even to hear the heartbeat in a tree, so mm. to speak. And where is the conveyance of that? The transmission is the transition rather than a, what we hear now in, in the, the alternative vernacular is we must transform from who we are into, into what, I ask. What are we transforming from into? And a sort of a metamorphosis like a bypass language if you, that we don't want to be here. So we speak a very present phobic language. Yes, you're right. Everything, everything is in the spirit of moving from transaction to transformation. Uh, and I mean, the positive side of that, you get in the West in things like the alchemical tradition, the medieval transition of, of turning lead to gold. So there's always that ambition in human beings. But as you're, as you're getting at, that, that in itself creates a condition where we're never very present because our mind is always in the future or in the past. My mind, I even to the past, I must admit, I'm really a, I'm a figure of the last century or the one before that. It's, it's even hard for me to be in this one, but here we are. Um, so I agree. I, I, I think a lot of the language we use now, I, I'm a father of a teenage girl, and her generation have taken on the language of trauma and the language of vulnerability and the language of continually being on the back foot and assailed by forces. Everything is a, a traumatic event. Now, whilst as a hopefully a loving, caring man, 
I'm always alert to the troubles and the travails we go through. There comes a point where you lose a degree of self-reliance if that is the only language at your disposal. And you lose a very unfashionable word these days. You lose a heroic approach to your life. Now, I don't mean heroic in a grandiose fashion. I mean heroic in the sense that you serve things that are bigger than your own ambitions, you know, a, a clan ambition, a tribal ambition. So I, I worry a little bit about the angsts, plural, that you just mentioned, the language, the continual language of damage in place of the what we should be doing is the language of beauty. Uh, there's a philosopher, a wonderful French philosopher called Gaston Bachelard, and he says this amazing phrase, the world seeks to be admired by you. So the moment you leave your house in the morning, things are vying for your attention to say, you know, find find 12 secret ways to praise a beech tree or a prairie. Now, interestingly, that very notion is the same notion that I heard coming out of Wallace Black Elk's mind 25 years ago. Be a praise maker. The world seems to be admired by. Can you grow barley on your tongue? There's not enough of that, I think. <laughs> I think it reminds me of one of an elder that I give reference to quite a bit is Martin Rechtel. And he often remarks that you're a Western or you're Christians. They were banned in 599 from grieving because the kings and the papacy that time, the peoples, they needed the energy to bury the dead where... Um, the Black Plague, the bubonic plague was happening and there wasn't not enough men to, you know, field an army. So anybody who were, was caught mourning their dead were either killed or punished or put in prison or their land taken away. So out of that came this fear language, which I refer to as angst. And so we're, we're, we're not really in the balance of praise and, and understanding grief at the same time. We're often given weight in the modern world only to praise. Let's hear the positive side of things and not the, the negative side. So we do, in the Western world, you can see it meted out in, in funerals where people don't know how to grieve. That's stored up in the memory, in the heart memory, if you will, being brought out slowly through churches and religions. Say so you can go this far, but you can't go too far. The message really is bigger than we are. And I feel that's what you carry. And in the pockets of wilderness that you say that you've been without becoming an animist, because I think that's a very Western concept of who we are naturally as beings of human, what it means to really truly listen to different energies. You and I have different energies, but we speak a language. You're speaking the language of the land there. So we are in a present with what you say is in the past and was in the future. Thank you. First thing I would say is you're, you're the venerable elder that you just mentioned, Martin Prechtel, uh, an, en an enormous force over the last 35 years in an extraordinary for me, myself and many of my generation. And anybody that has been around him or read him could not not have been touched by what he's up to. I'm thinking about, you know, a great theme in Martin's work and also something that you brought up, which is the notion of a culture that is fairly good at praise, 
but is adrift at grief. Now, in the in the kind of stories that I tell that often last several days, so you're we're we're down we're down for three or four days. Um, I'll tell an Irish story, for example, where there is a a poet hero called Finn, and he will fall in love with a woman who is also what we would call a woman of the she, a woman of the fairy. Her name is Sive, and she disappears. And when Finn realises she's disappeared, she's been taken by a sorcerer, he goes into his lover's chamber where they meet, and it turns out next to it is a small room filled with crow feathers, and he lies in the crow feathers for a day and a night. And it's always at that part in the story I often find myself saying, you know, the debt of love, the joy of love, all of the goodness of it, the other side of that very coin is where he lies right now. All lovers know this. All married people know this. this. There's this room that at some point you will have to lie in those feathers. And Finn, the name of the warrior, he looks for Sai for six years. And during that time, he he doesn't wipe the tears from his eyes. He doesn't cut the hair on his head. And they say he makes an altar in his heart for the bird that flew away which is a very, very unpopular modern notion. You make an altar in your heart for the bird that flew away, that your very longing has currency to it. It's a legitimate thing. I wish I'd known that when I was 16. Mm. <laughs> so the legitimacy of spirit, people would want to know how do we identify with that? Can I have that without experience? legitimacy as far as the western mind is concerned is very different in and if you hear the land if the, the land acknowledges you that's your stamp of validation but we look for the world the world is looking for the legitimacy to be here coming up with solutions for climate change saying oh this is our fault we did this but to almost qualify at the same time disqualify ourselves from being the ones who caused climate change. And yet over on this side where the native people are saying, we don't even have a word for climate change. What is there appearing? What do I feel if I was brought up in a very linear sense of being? Many years ago, and it's so long ago, I can't remember where I first heard it, but there was a notion, it may be, it may be from the land we now call Australia, but I can't be sure. There was a notion that modern culture that feels so calcified on our skin and so inevitable and so robotic, in actuality, is only three days deep. It's three days deep. And so to sit quietly in a, in a, in a wild place and get through the hunger get through the thirst, get through all of that. Within about three days, some very old door will open. But the wonderful thing about that particular tradition of fasting, it's not like gobbling, you know, a visionary vine. It's slow work. It's, it's seemingly undramatic. It very slowly takes you from one consciousness into this much deeper place that I think we're, we're touching upon. And that is an encounter, not a theory. That that's 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 something that your body remembers, and it's a it's an incredible love letter to a place 
to turn up and look at a tree, not as a bit of two by four or a plank that you're going to put on a ship, but sit down and then you stop eating. And the whole forest is looking at you thinking, why has this guy decided to stop doing the thing we always see? You know, he's not eating. Why isn't he eating? And then your body empties out and you fill it with prayers and you start to give something back. You know, you for a moment, your your mouth moves from the great nipple of the earth and you try and, and give some milk back or some protein, something like that. When I was 23, I, I ended up uh, on a hillside in Snowdonia and I fasted for four days and nights. And I had a my own version of what you just intimated about the 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 Brecon beacons and the horses. I had a you know, and I was ancestrally claimed really, and and by spirits, it was very startling. It was a very startling experience. Very what in Western language, what people would call supernatural, but it was strong enough and miraculous enough to give me the courage to then leave the kind of life I was living up to that point. And although there were no clear signals about what on earth you do with something like that, the reality was that it's, it, I ha, isn't it astonishing that, that the earth has not turned its shoulder away, but you sit and are quiet and generous and you keep listening and it, this inevitable generosity comes towards you. So do we, are we in a space now because of the chaos going on in the, in the world and the matrix basically is occurring. So we're in, we are almost naturally becoming heretics. We have to choose, but yet we don't have to because this comes from an elder of mine, Virgil Kilstrate. He said, you're one Lakota living in one world and that world you're related to and you're responsible to it. And the thing that is going to carry Teokasi forward, the thing that's going to carry Martin Shaw forward is story. It's the backbone yeah. of who we are. And that story must be heard into the future as well, because it comes from the past. And I'm going to use a Maori thought process that says they walk backwards along the spiral into the future. Because they walk backwards, they can see where they've been because they can trust the future because of where they've been. They've been where other people have been programmed to say, we walk forward into the future and we leave behind there. Now, this is the, this is the confusing part. What I've been told growing up that the ancestors are our future and it fits the, the, the spiral story, but yet it is true. My father, my grandfathers, all those who died before me went into the future. Along the way, I listened to my future. And because they're from the past, mm. so I know not to make the same mistakes. So I must learn how to trust the future by being in the present moment. And I don't fear the future or the past. But if I'm on the future, I'm going to fear the past. If I'm in the past, I'm going to fear the future. So there's no in-the-moment feeling. I feel that somehow we've gotten away from nature as we know, severed ourselves, and that's the trauma we're not being able to, the language we need. And so we have for a, for a long time since I've spoke, spoken this language, 
and learn the academic side of it as well as the street side of it, as well as the reservation side of it, is that we are we are being forced to speak a biophobic language uh. to keep us away from really feeling the consciousness of where we can be and should be. Mm. Mm. I I remember I used to say we live lives heavily defended against an experience of beauty and although we live around social media and continual images of a facsimile of what is meant to be beautiful and again as a parent I see this being aimed at my child all the time the reality the rawness the exuberance the mysticism of beauty becomes shielded by this rather plastic world that we're living in and as you're saying, I mean, it's incredible. It's a beautiful thing that your your ancestors inevitably become your future. I've always said, but I'd never realised why I was saying it till this moment with you. I always said I tell old stories because they're in the future. But I didn't know why I said it. It was always more like a poetic leap I was making than something even I understood. But I understand it now through what you just said. Bless you. Thank you. And that's Martin Shaw, poet, storyteller. We'll get back to Martin Shaw here on First Voices Radio in the second half. This is Tired of Fighting by the Menahin Street Band.
And welcome back to First Voices Radio. My name is Teokazin Ghost Horse. And in continuance of our conversation, Martin Shaw, writer, mythologist, Shenaki. And where does the story come from? As brothers, as sisters, as relatives, the story came from the trees. The story came from the animals because, as you know, they were here before we were. And they died before we did. Energy cannot be destroyed or created. Why are we thinking either one? And so this is, people are looking for a new language. I think we're really tired of the, the old language of angst. And we're reaching so far, but we, we don't know how because we have safety in numbers in the box. That box that constrains all of us tries to, you know, keep you in it. And comes up with new formula, new new world, and new country, and new land, a new city, a new idea, back to the drawing board mentality. So it kind of says to me, well, are we really asleep because we're rearranging the chairs on a Titanic? There's a story there. <laughs> there is a story. Now, can I ask you, when you were growing up, were you around storytellers? All the time. All the time. There wasn't always a lesson. It was always energy left left to you so you could make the choice rather than you being told you had a choice. And if there is no time in Lakota, how can we tell a story that has a beginning and an ending? That means if, if we are not having a beginning and ending, we must be right here, right now in this instant moment. The future and the present are always felt and your language becomes more powerful that you can actually take and sort of upload or update or bring that story of the past so that it really does matter. And I think we we lose something when we have to always define it, even as a story, Martin. Your story, where you were born and where you grew up and what you're still feeling is conveying this way. This is why I wanted to interview you because I'm hearing the story of the land that you come from. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. I, I've always been attracted to the notion that the older you go into these stories, the notion that a story has a title and it has a beginning and an end, this is a very, very recent experience. Everybody knew the figures within the story and each story splinters polyphonically into other stories and others and others. And that's how we stay alive over the winter. I had an experience with the coastal Miwok uh, up in Northern California, where I was invited in to be part of the ceremonies of their young men and women at the very end of their, whatever the initiations was, they were kind enough to say, we think you're okay actually, we think you're okay, come in, sit with us, and at a certain point, we may or may not ask you for a story. So I come into the roundhouse, very low ceiling, smoke, old ladies, blankets, no, you know, no one has a watch, no phone, no, no set, no, you are completely outside of conventional time. And they, they say, oh, you work with the drum, don't you? And I said, yeah, I work with the drum. So they give me this enormous, enormous staff. And they said, just start hitting the ground slowly with the staff. And there's a, a, a hole above my head. 
Nine hours later, here I am, still with the start. Nine hours later, we are now way into sort of three or four o'clock in the morning, I would guess. The beautiful young boys have come in and doing these incredible dances and showing the whole world the mythic ground they stand upon. The beautiful shimmering young women have come in like butterflies doing this kind of anti-clockwise dance, showing everybody, we're all crying. We're all crying. I'm there with my staff weeping away in the corner. My baby daughter is there as well, just watching with her eyes like saucers. And then finally, with no no kind of conventional reasoning behind it, I get a nudge. It's like, now, now. So it's like 6 a.m. I start to tell this story. Now, you, you, will be, you will be sympathetic to the fact that I didn't even kind of, I didn't really want to hear an English voice in that room at that point. You know, I, I felt all, all sorts of ancestral grief in me at that moment. I thought, I, this is, is this really the voice we want? But they were full of smiles. They'd seen me suffer with the, with the stick for hours and they said, okay, do it. So I tell the story and halfway through an old man just gets up and, and there's the there's the people I'm hitting. He just breaks, just glides past me and out the door. Now this threw me a bit and I thought, please let it not be that I've, I've offended this, this grandfather, you know? So at the end of the story, I, I go out and by now it's getting light and he's out there on his own with a stick. And I and I go over and I apologize and I said, Grandpa, I said, I, I just hope there was nothing in that story that was upsetting to you or or anything. He said, No, no, no. He said, but stories that good bring snakes. So I'm just out here defending you with the stick. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know. There is nothing. There is no applause. There's no book endorsement. There's no nothing anybody is going to ever say to me that has more meaning than an old man doing that. Nothing. And so I, I'd never forgotten it. And I knew that was the world that I loved. And I knew that was the world I wanted to live in. And I knew from that point more than ever why stories really mattered. Amazing. Why stories matter Who's listening to us, Martin? Who's listening to the radio? Who's listening to First Voices Radio? And maybe now there's trickles of the new age, whereas 10 years ago there was more, and 20 years ago especially there was new age out there. The stories that we are hearing, they used to be called wisdom stories or wisdom or wise, but yet it makes so much common sense to me. So... A lot of Native peoples in the Western Hemisphere do not have the word for wisdom. It's only common sense. So when we hear common sense, what you were talking about appears all the time, right? Like intuition is common sense. But we forgot how to identify, how to feel, even how to transmit or understand the energy of intuition. So we use conceptual words to try to emote what we're feeling but those they they only can go so far because they have definition we often get caught up in trying to solve the mystery rather than accept it 
And the story you told with about grandfather was that you accepted it without trying to solve it. Mm. That's that's transmission. Mm. You know, this weekend just finished. I had 70 students. I've had a school now for 20 years. So people come from all over the world and they study with me for two and a half days every eight weeks. And it was the second weekend. And the second weekend is always the one which is there's always the most trouble because it's the moment between surrendering to the bigger presence of the story and having to let go of whatever little bit of, you know, book learning, YouTube knowledge, new age tidbit you think you have around the antiquity and the technologies of ancient stories. It's either time to let go of all of it or you, you probably don't want to be doing this. And so you get these last sort of attempts at people to rationalize and literalize or turn everything into a metaphor, make everything symbolic. They, It's an awful thing to try and tell a story what it is. You just shouldn't do that. It's, it's an awful thing when often with storytellers, there comes this moment where you realize that they are now no longer in service to the story. The story is being co-opted to the point they want to make. And the moment you've done that, this old, this ancient transaction has finished. You were talking a minute ago about how when you were younger hearing stories, they weren't told to you didactically. They were transmitted imaginatively. And the lesson I was trying to give over the last few days was this, show don't tell when it comes to stories. Show don't tell. That's how, that's how to do the thing. That's what makes it living myth and not, you know, an app on your phone. It's, it's not an allegory. We'd all be earning far more money were we prepared to do that. But that's still speaking to the same confused little bit of consciousness that has got us into this situation. It's pretending it's a kind of faux wild, but it's, it's not the thing itself. And I wanted to commend you again on your, your message, as always, and you said non-discussed. And we should leave things non-discussed. The initiative, the potential, the, the, the intuition is always there and it can't be always packaged. And mm. part of the reason why I'm talking to you is, you know, I wanted to interview Martin all these years, but now's the time. And I felt it because in your your stories, in your messages, in your recent recent tour, even though I didn't hear any of these stories in your recent tour, but when I when I met you in Dartington Hall, I could feel the earth from where you were from, and that's what I wanted to know. What's the earth saying in England, according to Martin Shaw? That's a question. You know. Four years ago, I went out into an English, uh, to a Dartmoor forest right next to where I live, right next to where you and I were. And I visited it. Uh, I went on vigil for 101 days, long time. Now, what that means is not that I fasted for 101 days, but I would go there every day at dusk for several hours. And during those 101 days, I would tell stories, be quiet and listen. 
because I felt that the woods and the landscape and the and and the land where I come from is can be wary of people coming that are just on the take. They're usually there to to extract something. So I thought, well, what if I reversed that? And it was 101 day of gifts. And I think I probably expected a pretty bleak dream message to come back from the forest. I imagined it would be pretty bleak. And I imagined it would be something along the lines of, you know, we are packing up the tent in terms of human beings. And you need to sort of send that message of preparation. I don't know what, something like that, because that's what you, that's the message you get from ecological people, you know, all over the world is that sort of pandemonium. But the experience was nothing like that. It was very hopeful. And a, a perennial message I got through those whole 101 days was was twofold. One, it's not appropriate to tell your children that the earth, quote unquote, is doomed. It's it's insulting on a variety of levels, and it diminishes their wit and their chutzpah and their belief that maybe they could change everything. And secondly, that we have to remain attending to the grace. And when I say grace, I mean just those wonderful moments every day, those pinpricks of ancestral time, those pinpricks of dream time, those pinpricks of of some what some people would call eternity. And so the message I've had, for, and I lead many wilderness vigils here, every year we're all out in the woods, four days and nights fasting, four days and nights fasting, listening, be attentive. And the message actually is by no means as bleak as people in cities think. But there are two practical things without too much definition that everyone could do to tune their Aboriginal ear. I would, there's any language I can find for it. And one is to more regularly be in nature and approaching it. The manner of approach is important. The reverence is important. Reverie leads to participation is something that I always say. Because over here, we're so obsessed with work. If you see a guy wandering around with a blanket sitting in a wood, they think he's lazy. But it's that very reverie that leads to your heart breaking. And when your heart is broken, your heart is also open. And when your heart is open, you can fall into a swoon with the world again. Uh, and that isn't actually a passive position, it's an active one. Uh, but to, you know, to a lot of modern people, they can't track that process anymore. They they couldn't put those those things together. And so second, so number one is just that visceral, daily, undramatic fidelity. This is my big word, fidelity to a place. Keep showing up. It doesn't matter what you think about it. The lintel of your feelings is not the barometer of truth on that ceremony. The ceremony is not dependent on how you feel about it. And then secondly, as you've said beautifully, pay attention to the way a place discloses its stories to you. And they're not going to come in little paragraphs. They're not going to come like in little sound bites. But entertain the notion of how a river or, a, or the sea uh, or a little copse, how it speaks to you. We mentioned earlier on the issue of grief. 
in my own life this year, probably the fundamental event has been in my small community, the death of a young boy, boy, 12 year old boy. And we all knew it was going to happen. And because of, I had a reasonable closeness with him and his parents know me and trust me. I was able to be part of, of, of the, the, the wake and the funeral itself, but also listening to him in the months before he died about where he wanted to go and where he wanted to be buried and what that was to look and feel like. He didn't want to be buried in the woods because he thought people might forget about him if he was in the forest. He wanted to be in a place where we could come and we could have picnics. He wanted a view, wanted to be see the river, hear the birds chirping. And it gave that, that honouring of him that honouring of the sorrow that was coming, that honouring of, of, of the death of the boy also gave us a tremendous amount of creativity and joy in the way we approached it. We didn't just stand in black, sipping coffee, nobody weeping and talking about the Super Bowl, you know. And somehow, I know this is a long answer and we both like giving long, long responses. Somehow this is all coming from that was the boy listening to the land as well as himself he he had that so it, it sort of came out of the ground rather than just his mind you just was perfect age perfect story as he's at the age of vision quest and yet he's giving you his vision where did he go at that age he's living his vision perfect segue perfect continuing that we must do this again sometime soon to continue the story i haven't there's so many i haven't touched on that i want to but of course according to time we have to continue at another time well thank you so much for having me on and and i feel a great affinity uh and i feel refreshed by listening to you uh and you can count on me anytime you'd like to continue this conversation just let me know and i'll be here such an honor martin shaw who is a writer and mythologist and an oral storyteller. I get that. I understand it. I know it. I feel it. And an artist who's wins, wins, wins awards. And I, I'm going to pick up one of your books called uh, the, the Guardian and uh, go over your website. I only got to skip through it. But that's the beginning of that without the beginning, because I think I began with you six years, seven years ago. Yeah, when, yeah something like that so now we're just like coming to to be able to converse a little bit all right such an honor martin shaw for being here with first forces radio thank you so much we'll talk soon thank you and that was martin shaw shenicky an oral storyteller author writer mythologist you can find more at drmartinshaw.com and hear this interview again on itunes apple podcasts buzzsprout spotify as well as first voices indigenousradio.org for archive downloading and listening you're listening to first voices radio my name is teokson ghost horse and we'll go out with moonshine got me by daniel norgren
Oh 